The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by the author of Work of Human Hands, Father Anthony Chicada, Associate Pastor of Sanger to the Great in Westchester, Ohio, and in a few weeks, once again, a seminary professor at Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Father, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Stephen. Our listeners might remember that last month, we had to divide Chapter 12 into two parts, it might be Father's longest chapter in this book, but it, in addition to it being long, it's really important, and we felt that it deserved two separate episodes. We're going to pick up pretty much where we left off, which was in the middle of the chapter, and we're going to start talking about these horrible things called Eucharistic prayers. And I told you before the show, Father, that I had exited stage right or stage left uh, from the Novus Ordo before I'd really heard any of anything past. Eucharistic prayers one, two, three, and four. I'd uh, most frequently heard two and three in my Novus Ordo life. Uh, when I was with the Norbertines, I heard a lot of one, and every now and then I heard four. Um, but I never got to all of the other ones that you spend uh, time on in this chapter. So we'll have to start at the beginning. And uh, first of all, we should say that since they're creating this thing called the Eucharistic prayer, what are the elements that make up a Eucharistic prayer, quote-unquote, and how is it related to the Roman canon? Okay, first of all, um, as we discussed with the Roman canon the last time, this was a, a, a prayer whose content uh, and different emphases had um, uh, really originated in the myths of Christian antiquity. It's, it's so old we can't exactly fix a um, uh, time for when it started, or even who wrote it. So uh, you have the Roman canon on one hand, and uh, on the other hand, you have these Eucharistic prayers. And remember, her distinction, the idea was you had a canon, which is something fixed, and is the same basically all the time. The innovators came up with this idea of the Eucharistic prayer, uh, because it was not going to be the same thing all the time. There were going to be a number of uh, options. The um, different elements that uh, went to make up these uh, New Year's Eucharistic prayers, which were in effect made up, um, were ones that the modern scripture scholars decided should be in a Eucharistic prayer. One of the reasons they maintained the Roman canon was uh, had to go 
uh, was that uh, it didn't have these different elements, which, of course, they came up with. So when uh, you look at the structure of these Eucharistic prayers, generally what you, uh, well, always what you get is this. And again, this is one of those those modernist cookie-cutter patterns that uh, you see them apply to uh, the sacred liturgy. They, they, they had this, um, they have a, a certain pattern that they apply, say, to a liturgy of the word, that um, uh, certain things always have to go into the uh, same place in these structures they've come up with. So in the case of the Eucharistic prayer, uh, you have the preface, we, we know what that is. Then you have a, a transitional prayer after the Sanctus. You have this prayer called an Epiclesis, which we mentioned the last time. It is uh, a technical term for an invocation of the Holy Ghost. Then you have the institution narrative. This is formally called the consecration. You have the anamnesis, um, and that's the technical liturgical term for uh, prayer after the consecration. That is a memorial of the passion of uh, Christ and uh, alludes to op- uh, offering up the divine vi- victim. Then uh, you have a, a prayer that the offering will be received, uh, some sort of a commemoration of the saints and some intercessions, and then finally uh, what they call the great doxology, the through him, with him, and in him. So this is the structure that uh, all of the new Eucharistic prayers fit into. So uh, now I will have to get into, beyond these structures, the reduction in gestures. And I think this was something that really fascinated me when I went to my first traditional Mass, was all of these signs of the crosses. It was bewildering. Father, you know, I'd never seen it before. And I, I saw it in the Missal. And I, I, I mean, I saw the little crosses in the Missal, so I knew that it had to happen. But I think just watching it happen was another experience entirely. And I think you refer to it in the, in the book as, in a way, a teachable moment, something that's separate from the text itself and uh, our Lord, either you could say uh, in, in the bread and host form before the consecration and then our Lord after the consecration, that apart from his presence there or the preparation for his presence, that these actions really... They create a, 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 a really rich context for for the mass. Obviously, if you can see it, if you're in the back of church and you're not able to see Father, it, I don't think it takes away from your experience. But I think being able to see it is is a real richness. Yes, and this goes back to a principle we've talked about before that you know Catholicism as not just a. Um, uh, in-your-head religion like Protestantism, but um, an incarnational religion that uses a lot of visible signs. And that's what you have in these these gestures in the canon. They're technically referred to generally as, as manual actions, uh, the, because the priest performs most of them with his, his hand. So you have, for instance, uh, signs of the cross. He um, extends his his hands over the uh, oblata, that is to say, uh, over the bread and wine before the consecration. Uh, there are different genuflections. In the Roman canon, he strikes his breast. 
He raises his eyes up to the cross. He raises, joins his hands, kisses the altar, does profound bows. And in the Roman canon especially, he joins his forefingers and and thumbs from the consecration of the host uh, until after the ablution. So you have all of these these different uh, symbolic gestures that are that the priest is performing that are tied to different elements in uh, the text. So it's a whole uh, complex that's supposed to uh, convey uh, an idea of of the sacred action that is going on, and it it, it does it uh, makes an impression. Now in the new mass. These gestures have been uh, replaced in the Eucharistic prayers uh, basically to a minimum. It says, uh, I suppose that the uh, creators of the new mass figured that you couldn't get um, by with having just none of them, but therefore you reduce to reduce the number to as few as possible. So you have a uh, one uh, extension of the uh, priest's hands in the new Eucharistic prayers over the oblata. Uh, you have one sign of the cross left. Uh, you have um, uh, two genuflections uh, that uh, are left in the uh, um, uh, Eucharistic prayers. And you have the minor elevation before the Pater Noster. Uh, but uh, apart from that, that's basically it. That's basically all that's that's left. Any of the gestures, the, the raising of the eyes to heaven, and the kissing of the altar, and the pro- really profound bows, etc., and certainly the joint forefingers and thumbs, all of those are gone in the new Eucharistic prayers. Well, and we don't have time to get into all of them in today's episode as much as I'd like to. I really just want to focus on one here, Father, which is the genuflection. What is the significance of reducing those? So for our Novus Ordo listeners who don't, who aren't familiar with the traditional Mass, um, there's actually a genuflection right after, and I'm not sure if it says uh, immediately in the in the rubrics, uh, Father, but in, in the traditional Mass, the genuflection has to occur right after the consecration happens, whereas in the new Mass, it only happens after the host has been elevated. Now, what is the significance of this, Father? Or at least, what do you think? Well, the, the, the idea is that uh, the priest, after he consecrates the host, immediately performs, becomes uh, the body of Christ, and immediately he performs an act of adoration. And uh, that act, or, uh, act of adoration, by the bending of a knee, uh, precedes him lifting it up to show it to the congregation, and then um, he makes another genuflection after he puts the host back on the altar as uh, a sign of, of uh, adoration again. He does the same thing <clears throat> for the consecration of the precious blood, that uh, immediately he genuflects in adoration, he uh, holds it up so that people can adore, and then he uh, genuflects again. The uh, idea... Yeah, of um, abolishing those, uh, to my uh, way of thinking, the Novus Ordo is basically this: that for, well, first of all, it's a priestly gesture, so you have to reduce the number of those because it emphasizes the role of the priest. Uh, secondly, you de-emphasize 
this uh, idea of the the uh, element of adoration uh, by this this high lifting up of the host and high lifting up of the chalice that you formerly had, and thirdly that uh, you uh, perform a gesture of adoration only after it's been shown to the people, uh, and that's the this there's this notion of uh, the emphasis of the uh, importance, as it were, they always say, of the living assembly of the people of God. So you get sort of a triple header by abolishing those those two genuflections. Well, I think it's that last one that's the scariest, actually, Father, is the idea of having to show the host to the faithful in order to verify that that's actually the, 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 our Lord, that uh, only after the faithful have consented, in a way, uh, is is he manifested, which is, of course, a very scary idea. Yes, and that, that's something that traditionalist off, uh, authors have been pointing out for decades. And in fact, but I'm mistaken, the point is also made in the Ottaviani intervention, which uh, we recall was the first um, uh, shot over the bow uh, against the changes of the Novus Ordo. Father then goes on to talk about the Eucharistic prayers, and obviously starting with Eucharistic prayer number one, and Father Chicada takes a bit of umbrage at the idea that people call Eucharistic prayer number one the Roman canon, and he even alludes to the fact that Father Retro uh, in his Beretta and Catholic might call it the Roman canon. But, you know, Father, you've always said that you're happy to go out to lunch with anybody, so, uh, you know, if one of these Novus Ordo Father Retros took you out and you were having a conversation and he mentioned the Roman canon, uh, we would imagine a, a tut-tut from you. And why would you tell him, Father Retro, that's not the Roman canon that you're talking about? Well, because it isn't. <laughs> they, changed, they changed the text. The canon, first of all, the canon is something fixed. And uh, the, the, this uh, prayer is, is is not fixed. It's not the fixed way of consecration. Um, secondly, there are alterations in the text. The uh, different um, prayer conclusions, the per Christum Dominum Nostrums that occur, um, those uh, were rendered optional. So it's not a canon anymore. And then you have this uh, lengthy list of saints in the prayers before and after the consecration, uh, these were made uh, optional as well. So you have 21 names uh, in the first prayer and 11 in the second are optional. And these um, names ended up in the canon precisely because of uh, the devotion to these saints in Rome. So uh, it's not very Roman without those. And then finally, they changed the Words of consecration, as we'll see. So it's it's uh, sort of false advertising to say that Eucharistic prayer number one is the Roman canon, because it's it's it is um, uh, it is not the same. And and to be fair, listeners, the last time Bishop Dolan told me about Father confronting someone on inconsistencies, uh, Father waits at least until you've had your meal. So don't worry about Father Retro getting indigestion. From uh, from his correction, um, the, yeah, that doesn't settle the issue of the check, of course. But that's something else. <laughs> um, so, Eucharistic prayer uh, number two is the prayer that I heard most often 
as a member of the Novus Ordo sect. And you coined the epiclesis in here, the fastest epiclesis in the West. Um, apart from the fact that you've alluded to in previous episodes that the um, the Novus Ordo priests will do whatever is shorter. There's a sort of catering to that, whatever is shorter. Um, what um, what should people know about this prayer that they're they're most likely to hear if if they especially if they're a daily Novus Ordo goer? Well, there there are there are actually a great number of things. As you point out, it's the shortest. It's the road of least resistance. When these uh, prayers came out um, in uh, sixty. 68, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, liturgy teacher, uh, Father Robert Skiris, in, in the Minor Seminary in Milwaukee, was a rather conservative man, and he went through the explanations of these uh, uh, the supposed uses for the uh, four Eucharistic prayers. And his comment on the Eucharistic no- prayer number two is that, well, basically the idea is this is for people who are not too bright, so it is something that was written for the kiddies and the village idiot. I remember his, his words very clearly. So the way this was presented, uh, the, the second Eucharistic prayer, uh, to us by the, by its creators was that, well, it uh, actually uh, came from Hippolytus. And Hippolytus was a third century anti-pope, and he wrote uh, supposedly um, a, um, a document called the Apostolic Tradition, a liturgical text. So, in any event, this was given as the source for uh, the second Eucharistic prayer. And the idea was that, well, it was would be very good to have something ancient and Roman like this, and this would be very good for ecumenism. Uh, however. There are a number of uh, points to be made. This is another typical concilium um, uh, restoration of something ancient that turns out to be not so ancient because when you look at the uh, uh, text of the apostolic tradition that's supposedly a source, you have a number of things that are removed again. Uh, Christ, the notion of Christ as the angel of God's will is removed um, the uh, idea that our Lord dies in order to free from suffering those who had faith in him, that's removed. Obviously, that's not very universalist in its outlook. Or our, our Lord undergoes his passion so that he could break the bonds of the devil, trod hell underfoot, and lead the just to light. So there we have um, negative uh, theology again, this idea of the devil and the hell, and then... Um, uh, it's not really very universalist to say that, well, only the just are going to be led to light. And then finally, the original text thanks God because he has found us worthy to stand before him and serve him as priests. Well, the phrase as priests was omitted from the second Eucharistic prayer. Uh, Obviously, because the modernists wanted to uh, emphasize this notion of um, uh, the, uh, the, the modernist theology of uh, assembly. So you you 
uh, have that. It's 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 another one of those um, uh, historical recreations, as it were, that really does not harken back to the. Um, you know, it really does not harken back to antiquity. So uh, that's one problem with it. It's, it's uh, that these phrases are pulled out, are are uh, omitted. Uh, another uh, interesting anecdote about it, which just came out in the um, memoirs of Father Louis Bouillet, is that uh, the text of it, he, he and Dom Bernard bought, who was uh, a... Uh, uh, Benedictine uh, liturgical scholar and also modernist like Bouillet, that uh, in effect they uh, put this text together uh, one night in a Roman restaurant uh, in a trattoria, and uh, that uh, it was something that uh, I guess they did over the uh, did over the pasta. So uh, obviously. Uh, that's not an ancient source. And then subsequently to this, um, uh, subsequently, the um, uh, liturgical scholars uh, have uh, uh, pointed out that this is not, uh, this text is not, in fact, uh, an ancient Roman text at all. And this this came to light after I um, after I wrote this book, that uh, it is a text that's probably from uh, from Syria, and that there's really no connection between it, strictly speaking, and the Roman liturgy. And this was uh, uh, this was pointed out in 2011 uh, in an uh, article written by a, a scholar from the. Uh, I think the Institut Catholique in Paris. Uh, he studied the history of the text, and also his um, uh, the man who supervised this. Uh, a bit of research was Paul Bradshaw, who is a very um, probably the most um, renowned uh, expert on uh, ancient liturgical canons in the world. And he seconded this, the, the, the article by this uh, scholar from the Institut Catholique. So on every point, this is a, um, uh, in terms of, of authenticity of a text, uh, in terms of its mode of preparation, and in terms of what it claimed to be, it's a total fraud from beginning to end, but a typical modernist production. Well, speaking of frauds, let's move on to the third Eucharistic prayer, which is what I would normally hear on Sundays when I was in the Novus Ordo those many, many years ago. Yes, well, uh, here, uh, this, remember the last time we talked about Cipriano Vagagini uh, and the book he wrote giving 14 reasons why the Roman canon should be uh, ditched. Well, uh, this uh, Eucharistic prayer number three is essentially the work of Cipriano Vagagini. It's something that he uh, uh, put together in the library of some monastery in uh, Europe in a, uh, a three months during a, a summer in the 60s. So it's, it's, it's the work of Vagagini. Uh, there are a couple of ideas in it. Uh, first of all, there, there's this, this idea, uh, you gather a people uh, to yourself so that a pure offering would be made to your name. 
the Ottaviani intervention in 68 pointed out that the passage makes it appear that the people rather than the priest are the in- indispensable part of the celebration and possess autonomous priestly powers. Now that would be uh, consistent with the theology of assembly that we've seen that was laid down as the basis for the creation of the new mass. Uh, secondly, uh, if you live through the 60s, you'll remember uh, the modernists talking a great deal about we are a pilgrim church. Well, the phrase God's pilgrim church on earth is something that occurs in uh, this um, Eucharistic prayer number three. Uh, it is not a reflection of anything ancient and Roman. It is simply a 60s idea uh, dumped into this uh, Eucharistic prayer. So you have uh, uh, elements like this uh, popping up in the um, uh, most commonly used, what was mo- the most commonly used uh, Eucharistic prayer in the Novus Ordo. Well, and I, I don't really want to get too much into the rest. It's rather depressing, uh, Father. Uh, Eucharistic Prayer 4, and you mentioned, you cite Eucharistic Prayer for Reconciliation 1, Reconciliation 2, Various Needs 1, Various Needs 2, Various Needs 3, and then the ones for children, 1 through 3, it's pretty pretty terrible. So what I was hoping is just to pick a couple low light from each of these for you to comment on. The first well, low light. <laughs> the first low light. I want to start with the children one. Uh, I didn't even know about this, and I, I think I told you this is pretty much post my time. I, I was in the Novus mm-hmm. Ordo when they were really using those Eucharistic, those four Eucharistic prayers, and I really heard mostly two and three. These other ones, I really can't say that I've ever experienced. So I'm reading them in your book or reading them in other places. That's the only way I've experienced them, and, and it's pretty horrifying. Just reading them in a book, uh, in a safe place, much less being subjected to this person. But um, I'm going to read from the, the children's Eucharistic prayers. Most lovable Father, you give us this joy so we can thank you and rejoice together with Jesus in your church. You love us so much that you made this big and beautiful world for us. And the children are supposed to respond, glory to you, Lord, who loves us men. Not very inclusive language, is that? You love us uh, so no, much. No, I guess not. <laughs> you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, who could lead us to you. And the children again say, glory to you, Lord, who loves us men. You love us so much that you bring us together in Christ and make us sons in one family through the spirit of adoption. Glory to you, Lord, who loves us men. Why aren't you using this in St. Gertrude's, Father? <laughs> because it's sexist. <laughs> <laughs> the the um, uh, well, this is the the uh, really de- the total debasement of the Roman liturgy. What you have is it's it's turned into sort of a participatory Sesame Street type of event. That they have the idea, the creators of this mass, and it was this form of the mass, and it was Bugnini. This was specifically the children's directory was his idea, was his baby. He thought it was just great. Uh, the idea is that well. You uh, have to grossly simplify everything, bring the liturgy down to the level of the kids. They have a low attention span. You have to make them bark out little responses, uh, and you have to use um, um, simple and 
uh, idiotic baby talk. Now, uh, the uh, all of that that psychologizes everything and debases the liturgy, brings it down to a different level. One of the things, though, that uh, I am a witness to as someone who grew up in the pre-Vatican II Church is that if the uh, complex rites are explained to you and you have a way of participating uh, in them uh, and you're taught how to do that and taught how to follow them, you have no difficulty as a kid understanding what's going on. We had we learned how to use the missile in fourth grade, and uh, we learned all the flipping back and forth. We learned how to sing the uh, the different parts of uh, the mass. So it it, it really that really uh, gives the lie to nonsense like this that this is what kid kids need. They needed a base liturgy. That's wrong. <laughs> I, I was going to read a few more of these, but I. You know, I just had dinner a little while ago, and I I can only take so much. So I'm just going <laughs> to. Well, one, one, one thing I will point out is that your experience and mine were similar. That I didn't hear these prayers for reconciliation or various needs uh, when I was part of the Novus Ordo. The one exception was uh, one of the prayers for reconciliation was. Um, based on a, uh, a prayer that was permitted for the 1975 Swiss Synod. And when I was in Switzerland at the Cistercians, we ended up at a, a monastery where this was used. It was the first time I'd heard it. Then I, I went back, actually, in the preparation of this book uh, to um, read and to examine these, these uh, uh, different texts that were added subsequently to the 1968 text. And I mean, it's, they're absolutely appalling. There's no way you can say that they were written in a, uh, a, the traditional Roman style. It's like uh, a, a the, the whole style, all of the concepts and everything are straight 60s, peace and justice, horizontal, uh, bomb fog, uh, the, you know, the brotherhood of man, the fatherhood of God, all this, this vague nonsense, pilgrim church, etc. And if you understand anything, and what's a scream for me and what's really depressing is that you read this nonsense in Latin. Uh, that, that there was some um, idiot who was charged with putting all the stupidity uh, into Latin. And so it's a 60s time tunnel trip uh, so with, with, with all of these, these horizontalist, horizontal 60s ideas. So, I mean, that's one thing I would point out. And the, the other thing is they, they have the, um, uh, what commentators call like a universalist perspective. In other words, that basically everyone and every, uh, is um, included, as it were, in public uh, prayer on a more or less equal basis. Uh, that uh, the um, uh, idea of uh, rather than than praying, especially in a public prayer for uh, the members of the church, and then secondarily only praying for the conversion of of, uh, uh, of heretics, of schismatics, and of pagans. So uh, that Vatican II idea was the, uh, worked into these these prayers as well. So if you, you, you want to sum up the two basic problems with these, it's the uh, crazy 60s theology, and it's the universalism. 
Well, and I think you've, you've saved me from having to go any deeper into them for now, Father. So I think we'll, we'll just, uh, we'll put a, a note, uh, C60, and people will understand what we're talking about <laughs> when we're talking about these Eucharistic prayers. Yeah, I think you have to have Dylan playing in the background or something like that. Right, or, or you know, Bishop Sanborn's favorite lady, Madonna. Uh, yes, that's... That, a, would, that would work as favorite well. Favorite seminarians marrying him from the 60s, yes. <laughs> so. Um, so now we get to what is often considered the most controversial part of your your book, and I remember telling you at the time when I first read it, uh, and, and, uh, and to paraphrase, this is a hard saying, Father. Who can take it? And um, and I was already a traditionalist. I, I was no friend of the Novus Ordo. I hadn't attended the Novus Ordo for years, but it still really was a, a tough thing to take. And I think this is probably the toughest thing for the Novus Ordo in our uh, in our community. You could say who listen to Restoration Radio or who are passers-by that. Uh, there is a fundamental change going on here. That we're we're moving away from the idea of words of consecration, and we're going to this idea of institution narrative. And you had mentioned that earlier uh, in our episode today when you were talking about the requisite parts of the Eucharistic prayer. And we didn't go mm-hmm. too too deeply into those parts, but it's really important that we go into this part. So, what's the institution narrative, and and why does it have nothing to do with the words of consecration? Well, the uh, institution narrative, that that particular uh, phrase, refers to telling the story of what went on at the institution of the Blessed Eucharist, of, of, of the Mass, all right, of the, the, the sacrament of the Eucharist. So it's, it's a, the idea of narrative is that you are telling a story, you are somehow recounting a past event. So uh, you have that concept uh, against the idea of a consecration. The idea of a consecration, theological notion behind that in the Mass, is, is that this is the point at which the uh, bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. And there's a real change that is um, uh, affected here, real and substantial change. Uh, that is different from simply telling a story about what went on in the past. So the difference would be uh, the uh, uh, reading, let's say, an account of the Last Supper uh, at the time of the Gospel of the Mass, and then the the consecration, that's the telling of the story, and the consecration idea is the priest then is uh, is uh, as distinct from that as not simply telling a story, but is acting here and now in the person of Christ to effect this change. So there's two different uh, two different concepts. So in the um, you find this shift in the uh, Novus Ordo from a consecration to a narrative. The thing is, the first question is, why do you do that? Well, uh, it's, first of all, it's the usual suspects that we, we find in the book. It's ecumenism and, and modernism, that the Protestants explicitly uh, reject all of the theology underlying the notion of consecration. So uh, they... Uh, would have no concept that that at the when the minister recites 
uh, their equivalent of this is my body and this is my blood, that there's any real change in the Eucharist or in, in the bread and wine. So there's that. Uh, and then the modernists, uh, for their uh, for their part, uh, for, they don't believe that Scripture records the uh, Christ's actual words, of course. But uh, the idea of a consecration of, of this change taking place at one point is repugnant to them because it's tied up with the old theology of the matter of the, uh, matter of the sacrament, uh, the uh, physical thing that you need for a sacrament, and the form, the essential formula. They reject that because that that uh, reflects the old uh, essentialist uh, Thomistic theology, and they dismiss that as magic words. You find dismissals of that um, type of language in the writings, for instance, of Louis Bouillet, who says that it's it's uh, uh, when you do this, you disintegrate the Christian Eucharist. So, when the creation of the new mass, they went from this idea of the consecration to a narrative, and uh, so they had to effect uh, a whole number of changes in the right to do this. And they explained in the general instruction, 1969 general instruction on the uh, Novus Ordo that gave the theological and rubrical principles behind it, uh, they did not use the word consecration for this part of the Mass. They simply said the institution narrative. So there's this the consecration to narrative, there's a theological shift. And they especially avoid the uh, idea of an essential formula, the form of the sacrament. So the, the, this theological shift, and um, you will not, by the way, find the concept of the form of the sacrament in the JP2 catechism, uh, so-called the catechism of the Catholic Church, that's disappeared. Well, it has to fit in line with these changes, doesn't it, Father? Well, to say the least, right? <laughs> so we, we, now, we, we have to get rid of that old theology. Now our listeners can't see this, but Father has a side-by-side on page 340 of the text. Those of you who do have the text, uh, you can reference it. And he's got on the left-hand side the Roman canon, the actual Roman canon. Sorry, Father Retro. And then on the right-hand side, he's got the Eucharistic prayers. Now, the key difference in the first part that a Novus Ordo is going to note is the difference between Hocus Deinem Corpus Meum, which is the this is my for this is my body uh, words of consecration in the Roman Canon in the traditional Mass, and the take and eat all take and eat this is my body which will be given up for you, that lifting and mashing together. So instead of having a clean bolded word of you know words of consecration that are separated we have these these new accoutrements secondly in the second part uh the consecration uh the words for the consecration of the blood the words mystery of faith are removed and in the novus ordo you know father when we're talking about the novus ordo you tell me mystery of faith all i hear is this horrible insipid christ has died christ is risen Christ will come. It's just, it's a nightmare. It runs in my head oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, whenever I hear this. 
So can you discuss the that sort of mashing together instead of leaving Hoka Stadium Corpus Neum as is, they need to add this stuff. And then what happened to the mystery of faith? I mean, it's a mystery to, to most people, I think. <laughs> well, uh, as regards the first part of your question, uh, to make it into a narrative uh, and to destroy the idea of a sacramental form, you simply uh, add uh, words of a quote to it. Uh, so our Lord says, take eat, uh, take uh, and eat, eat all of this, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. So that's the that's the idea of, of giving a quote. So you're telling a story, and then you give a quote, just as you would when you're uh, reading the gospel, okay, when you're narrating the gospel. The other um, point in the um, uh, consecration of the chalice, the mystery of faith, um, it's not a, a scriptural formula, and liturgical scholars have never been able to figure out uh, exactly when it started to be used, because again, uh, the early ages of the church is difficult to find um, documentation, uh, manuscripts, etc. But the uh, it's it's uh, a phrase, the mystery of faith, that is. Is, sanct- is sort of sanctified by uh, tradition. And you have, have uh, many pre-Vatican II authors um, going all the way back discussing the uh, importance of this phrase, that it's, it's uh, a, an immediate pro- proclamation of the real presence, in effect, of, of um, Christ in uh, after the, the words of consecration. The essential words of consecration are uh, being recited. So you have that on one hand. Uh, The modernists wanted to remove this for uh, several reasons. Uh, The primary reason, actually, is that that it's something that's sanctified by uh, tradition. Secondly, uh, the uh, idea is, well, it's not biblical. Uh, but uh, it's not found in the Bible, but so what? Uh, the fact that the church put it in um, is is an indication of how important it is. It was considered in Catholic uh, tradition and Catholic theology. So uh, you have all of these um, uh, spurious reasons that were put out for... Um, removing the phrase, the mystery of faith, what they did with it uh, is they made it uh, an introduction to that uh, insipid acclamation that you just sang, that Christ has died, Christ has risen. So they, they took the phrase mystery of faith, they pulled it out of the words of consecration, and they made it uh, to be an introduction to this little song that they sang. Well, it, what's going on there? Well, if you look at the texts of those particular acclamations, those refer to the uh, uh, coming of Christ in glory at uh, at the end of time. So uh, instead of the, as formerly the mystery of faith being associated with the miracle of the real presence, uh, it's... Uh, extracted from the words of consecration and shifted to something else to uh, 
make it seem as if, well, the real mystery of faith is uh, that Christ is going to come at the end of time. So it, by fooling around with these different elements of uh, the consecration, this is all done uh, very, very, you know, with, with, with a purpose in mind to undermine the uh, traditional Catholic theology on the notion of, of the consecration, the sacramental form, the real and substantial presence of Christ, and to, to uh, muck everything up uh, as much as uh, possible in creating this, this new, the so-called transformed liturgy. So their whole, and what I mentioned is just the tip of the iceberg, as far as the problems that come from from removing this phrase and putting it in another position. Well, I mean, and the frustrating thing, it's not even a mystery. It's a fact. Our Lord is going to come. I don't know why that would be a mystery. Uh, they, he's coming at the end of time, and they don't even come up with a good explanation for it. I mean, uh, now, you, you mentioned that once it's been removed, uh, when you're talking about Eucharistic prayers one, two, three, and four, in newer iterations, they didn't even want to see that. They didn't even want to see the the myth that they've created behind the Mysterium Fidei. No, indeed, no, indeed. Um, <laughs> the um, uh, one of the um, one of the points which is a detail point which we should uh, mention is is in fact initially when the first three or when the, the eucharistic prayer two three and four came out in 1968 uh, they contained this new formula of consecration and for about a year the roman canon retained the old formula of consecration but in 1969 uh, paul vi changed the form of consecration of the Roman canon to conform to uh, the institution narrative pattern that had been uh, introduced in uh, EPs 2 through 4. Well, I suppose what's not a mystery is the effects of these changes. Father, though you might have to elucidate them a little bit more specifically for our listeners, we have the changes from words of consecration to the institution narrative. We have this removal, complete removal of Mysterium Fidei from the words of consecration. So leaving aside, you know, things like Mediator Dei or, uh, or other, other acts of, of the Magisterium prior to Vatican II, which, which dealt with the form and matter of sacraments. Can you tell us what two or three things are really major effects of the tampering that we've seen here? Because up till now, I would say the real damage has been to the Catholic faith and to devotion within, within the faithful. Everything we've chronicled in the previous 11 chapters has been on impoverishment of the liturgy. And people could still hold on and say, yes, but our Lord is still here because I have the words of consecration. And so there's a valid mass and, and you can't take that from me, Father Chicago. So, well, uh, in fact, what what happened is is uh, this all was designed uh, precisely to take that away from you, uh, to take the valid consecration away from you, because the the concept of validity and the concept of consecration are alien to this new theology, and the purpose of these changes in the rites uh, was to convey a um, 
new idea of the Mass to those who assisted at it. So uh, what uh, what happens is, uh, in, in uh, Catholic theology, um, traditional Catholic theology, when you change the, um, the meaning or the sense of a sacramental for what's supposed to be the absolute minimum that you need for a sacramental form, uh, you render the right invalid. And uh, this is because the, the words that are used must signify sufficiently the uh, action that's going on. In modernist sacramental theology, the, the type of sacramental theology that was taught after uh, the Second Vatican Council, that was uh, no longer the idea. They dismissed the idea of an essential sacramental form. Uh, and uh, as, as magic words, and, and uh, that this was the old theology, we had to discard this, and you shouldn't worry about it. So uh, they did this not only in, 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 in textbooks, but they applied this principle to the uh, new Mass by uh, removing the notion of a, a sacramental form uh, and turning it into a narrative. And you see it even in their uh, treatment of uh, 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 a schismatic body known as the um, uh, Assyrian Church. The Assyrians uh, were a schismatic body that had a uh, their own liturgical rites, and one of the Eucharistic prayers, the anaphora of Adai and Marai, that they used in the rite actually did not have the words of our Lord in it, didn't have the words of consecration. But the Vatican under um, Ratzinger, or rather when Ratzinger was the head of the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, he said that, well, uh, you, this was not something that was um, uh, really needed, uh, that uh, the general concepts of... of um, uh, this is my body and this is my blood, we're sort of spread out through the prayer, so you don't really need these essential words. So that's your new theology. So if you can, you can say that, um, you know, a Mass uh, can still be a Mass without the words of consecration, then I mean anything is possible. Now, the, the Bataviani intervention in 68 uh, pointed out uh, this problem uh, by saying that that everything that was done to the the consecration changes the what was called the modus significandi, the the, the manner of what it's supposed to signify, how they show uh, how the words show forth a sacramental action taking place, that the priest pronounces the formulas for consecration as part of a historical narrative, rather than as Christ's representative, and. Um, he, in a footnote, the intervention uh, said that uh, the uh, force of the sacramental words no longer comes, uh, 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 that the, uh, the validity of these words doesn't come from uh, the force of the words in themselves or what they mean. Whereas this was something very clear in the old right. So the um, conclusion is that the consecration, as was uh, understood by traditional Catholic theology, does not take place in the new Mass. 
you have a narration that takes place instead. And But this narration does not transform the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. The And this is perfectly consistent with the modernist theology of the Eucharist. It's not something that's, that's necessary. Traditional Catholic theology, however, says very clearly that the words of consecration um, uh, can't be said merely as a historical narrative because the consecration will take place. Uh, and that's something that you find um, repeated in several uh, moral theology texts, because uh, there's a difference between telling a story and the priest uh, acting in the person of Christ. So you end up with a uh, you end up with a rite that, uh, from the point of view of, of um, Theological error is not not only filled with theological error, but isn't a true mass at all, because it doesn't affect this transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. In some ways, Father, it's a very shocking uh, end of the chapter. But in a certain way, you've been preparing us for this. and I almost think you, you had to wait 11 chapters to get us ready for this chapter. Um, a little bit of inside baseball, what were your thoughts in, in formulating this, and, and how did you think people were going to respond to this? Because as I told you, I, it, I told you it was a hard thing for me, and I was uh, either already a set of a contest or on my way to be, becoming uh, part of the dark circle of the non Kun set of a contest. So I certainly wasn't a, a sympathizer. Um, what, were your, what were your thoughts when you were, when you were putting the finishing touches on this chapter? Well, first, the first one is this: uh, that um, is trying to explain clearly exactly what the Novus Ordo people did. You know, the factual, um, uh, the, the factually how, how they they changed things uh, in the text. So that, uh, and uh, oftentimes because people are not. Uh, attuned to the different concepts in the sacred liturgy, uh, different technical concepts, it's very difficult for them to grasp that. So first of all, there was the, the uh, striving to try to explain that as as clearly as I possibly could for layman's understanding. Then secondly, uh, there is the question of trying to, equally trying to enunciate the principles that uh, apply and to make the clear distinction between a narrative and uh, sacramental form. And uh, then finally, to show the, the effects of that, because um, <coughs> changes, liturgical changes like this were done for a purpose. And one of, one of the quotes that we used to begin the book was from uh, uh, Archbishop Antonelli, who said that, in the liturgy, every word and every gesture conveys a theological idea. And sometimes what happens uh, is that when you change um, the uh, word and, uh, words and gestures in the liturgy, you not only change the theological idea, but it has other effects as well. And the invalidity then of uh, the Novus Ordo Misse is something that results uh, from these changes. So uh, it, it, uh, to get to that conclusion, 
I had to try to uh, show people how uh, the different steps, the factual points, and then the uh, then the general principles. And it's not, I mean, uh, the uh, it's not necessarily something that you say that well is a you know it's a, a foregone conclusion that you started out with this idea of trying to get to it. No, it's 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 something that is uh, that um, when uh, you look uh, in toto at what was done to the uh, new mass and when you see the hatred that its um, creators had for uh, traditional concepts of, of uh, in Catholic theology, the teaching of the Council of Trent, especially Thomism, then uh, it's, it's um, entirely understandable when you come to that conclusion that this, this new right is, um, uh, uh, is invalid, that um, uh, that is what flows from everything that proceeds. What did you find the reaction was? I know, for example, you're in contact with the people like uh, Father Brian Harrison, he's in the Novus Ordo, and uh, the back of your book has blurbs, um, not blurbs, but mentions from Alpin Reed, etc. Was this the chapter that, that attracted the most correspondence, or was it something else? Because uh, my well, no, no they they, they objected. Um, uh, some of the reviewers did object to this, but uh, it's very difficult to object in terms of. Um, uh, traditional Catholic theology uh, to, to point out the difficulties in the argument. And, and uh, no, you did have people who uh, definitely who did uh, uh, complain about it. But as far as making a, a positive argument uh, against it or some sy- sort of systematic argument against it, uh, none of them really did that. You've, there's a difference between objecting to something and then uh, uh, you know answering the argument on its own terms. It was the same thing with the Unicum article that uh, or that I did. That you know, many people squawked about it, but um, in terms of um, refuting it on its, uh, its own terms or refuting the arguments point by point, uh, no one really um, was able to do that. Well, listeners, uh, that's it. That's the end of chapter twelve. Uh, and we've gone through today in Work of Human Hands, which is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. We've gone through the second part of Chapter 12, which was Deplorable Impoverishment, and we've discussed the construct of the new Eucharistic prayer, how it's not at all, not even Eucharistic prayer number one can call itself the Roman canon. And then we talked about the the fundamental change, uh, institution narrative versus words of consecration, and Father walked us through the, the consequences of that, which, which leads to an invalid mass. And I think that's probably the most challenging thing for Novus Ordo. They've come with you on this journey so far, Father. And I think we're, we're either close to or we're right around where your video series is right now. Yes, um, indeed. That this is a... This is one of these these moments that they really have to confront. And they may say, I, I need to read Father's chapter a few more times in order to make sure I understand. And I think that's fine. I, I don't I don't think people should just read chapter 12 and say, okay, I get it. I, you're going to have to read it a few more times. And obviously, pray about it, think about it, talk to people about it. But 
as Father has said, if there's not anyone who can give you a credible refutation of it, and there hasn't been, the book's been out 2009, how, how, it's been out for uh, 2010. 2010 it came out. Mm-hmm. So it's been out for five years. So if someone had a substantial objection to this, they should have brought it out, you know, to take care of their Novus Ordo um, parishioners, but they haven't. And so I think that that's uh, pretty important, and you owe it to yourself. And again, we told you before, you don't have to get the book, but you're going to get the most out of this radio series if you've read the chapter before listening to the podcast. Uh, and so you can get uh, you can get Father's commentary. Father, before we close today's episode, is there anything that you'd like to say? We're heading into uh, our final two chapters of the book, so you might we might shed a tear for the end of a, a radio series, but. What do you have to say uh, for the end of chapter twelve? Well, I, I, um, I, you mentioned the films. I do hope to get uh, the uh, rest of the films completed at some time. The the the, the real uh, mountain to get over were uh, the the two films that I had to do on uh, first on the Roman canon, and then secondly on these these new Eucharistic prayers. So it's it's a little bit downhill from here, and I, I hope to have. The opportunity to be able to do that to get at least one more of the, these films out uh, during the course of the fall. And well, just make sure uh, you don't get stuck make... in a rut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that has a way of happening, you know. I've I've heard that in the traditionalist movement, but we 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 try to keep moving, right? <laughs> We're pilgrim city of the contests. <laughs> Um, well, we look forward to having you back next month, uh, Father. Uh, you'll be back to the seminary and the school year there, and we'll be back to talk about Chapter 13, uh, what comes after. Again, thanks so much for your time, and we, we look forward to, to continuing our series and, and finishing it up in the next couple months. Thank you, Stephen, and God bless you all. Thanks, Father. We want to remind our listeners that Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. If you have any questions for Father, follow-ups on this chapter, uh, additional questions, remember that you can write to humanhands at truerestoration.org, and Father will get the correspondence and we will answer your questions. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rose tree, or even a simple ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. 
See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.